Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of organic growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can also sign up for our newsletters on our website as it's the best way to find out when new episodes and blog posts come out, as well as any discounts or coupon codes. Our guest this week is Chris Jagger. Chris is the owner-operator of Blue Fox Farm, a 40-acre organic vegetable farm in the Applegate Valley of Southern Oregon. He is also the owner and head consultant for Blue Fox Agricultural Services, a full-service agricultural supply and consultation company focusing on ecological solutions for the modern farmer. Both his farm and his agricultural services use living soils as a foundation to scale farming operations efficiently and affordably. He rounds out his involvement with the agricultural community by hosting the Living Soil Symposium each March. The symposium is an interactive conference for farmers interested in regenerative farming techniques to exchange knowledge and gain insight in a peer-to-peer environment. All right. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, I wanted to start off giving listeners a little bit of your background. Sure. Yeah. My wife and I have Blue Fox Farm in Southern Oregon. And uh, we grow a variety of mixed vegetables on about 40 acres. Uh, we have about 15 acres in production the last couple of years. And we've been down here for about 16 years now. And we've got two kids that we're raising as well, two boys. We really uh, we focus a lot on direct sales to the customers that we have through farmers markets, direct to co-ops and that kind of stuff. And then also I've the founder of the Living Soil Symposium uh, that we're in our third year this year. And that, besides uh, a couple other side projects that I have, kind of take up most of my time. Yeah. So how did you get into farming? Before you moved to Oregon, I, we talked a little before the podcast and you had started out in California, you mentioned? Yeah, we started in Santa Cruz in the late 90s. That was right at the very beginning of when organics really started taking off and the local movement was just starting to you know gain its footing and so we started interning on farms there and just working in the fields picking strawberries picking beans you know just that that grind doing the work and uh, then we ended up moving to Colorado and interning there on a couple farms and then my wife and I ended up managing one of the farms that she had interned on for a couple of years. And that really gave us our chops as far as how to how to be managers, not just farmers. So then you moved out to Oregon and I know you, you bought some land there and expanded and have, have kind of gone through some growing pains. Can you talk a little bit about your background with cannabis? Uh, sure. Yeah. My background with cannabis, um, it's it's been a very loose relationship over the years. I haven't actively been a grower, but I've been surrounded by a really strong community here in Southern Oregon of cannabis growers. And I've always been supportive of what they're doing. And we've all interacted with each other over the years and kind of shared tips um, because it's all agriculture. So we've all wanted to figure out what we can do to help each other. That's that's really my my relationship has been uh, as a support uh, to that industry as it's grown and changed. Yeah. And you you brought up something that I know we're both big proponents of, which is that cannabis and agriculture are 
should be one and the same in a lot of ways that we can pull a lot of great information and technology and stuff from the farming community and from agriculture that already exists. We don't need to reinvent the wheel here. And right. yes, you know, cannabis is a special plant in a lot of ways in terms of its medicinal values, but that doesn't mean that it, we can't cultivate it in, in a similar fashion. Um, I know that uh, you you mentioned to me off air that you've started, you had your first year growing hemp, which is in a lot of ways similar to cannabis. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, for sure. Um, that was really exciting to take that project on. I looked at it as really a proof of concept. My approach for it was to try to grow the hemp crop exactly how I would a vegetable crop. So I, I've been working on building my soil fertility and my soil biology up over the last several years working this ground. And I, I had a special spot that I knew I wanted to put the crop in. Just it's the area that I've done the most work on. And I, I said, well, I want to be able to grow this just like I grow a kale crop. And I want to see if I can have success from that. And I also wanted to grow it without having to put a lot of hand labor into the plot. I wanted to be able to, to just grow it on scale just as a way to look at how we might scale up production. So we did all of the work with as far as bed prep goes with our tractors, with the same the same bedding system that we use in a kale crop. We use the same fertility program that we use with our kale crops. We transplanted it mechanically with a water wheel transplanter, and we set it up in a way with a bed system where we were able to cultivate with our tractors throughout the entire life cycle. So we had an empty alleyway between the rows where then we could cultivate on either side once it got taller and bigger. and we started with an overhead irrigation uh, system and we irrigated overhead all the way up until the second week of flower. And then we transferred to a drip tape after that. And so it, it was just really interesting to watch the season progress and see how amazing these plants are at growing and how, how effective they are at, at just pulling off like this amazing growth in such a short period of time. And at the end of the season, the biggest cost to us was the labor of harvesting. You know, that was our biggest bottleneck was then, you know, getting the plants down and into our barn to start the drying process. And that that really was the only area that took a, a large amount of hand labor. Everything else was done in a way that we would do any other vegetable crop. It was it was really amazing to to watch it grow. Did you face any particular challenges with it and related to like, say, pests and disease that you didn't face with your other crops? Uh, no, uh, not really. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of ways that we could look at that. It was a very dry fall here in Southern Oregon. We had a really long summer. And so that was an advantage. We have strong winds that blow through our valley every afternoon. So as far as any disease pressures that we might see in vegetable crops, we didn't see any any problems there at all. And we had the plants spaced out enough that they weren't compacted in. So they were planted on six foot centers out in the in the beds. The pest pressure, the only pest pressure we really saw was right after transplant was cucumber beetles. We've got cucumber beetles here that are 
just rampant. They're just, it's amazing how strong of a population they have. And so the way we dealt with that was we covered the plants right after transplant with insect netting that we use on like a lot of our brassica crops to keep flea beetles off of. And that worked great. Like once we got the plants up to a healthy, healthy size, and then they were just starting to crank, they could grow out of any pest pressure after that. And we did, we constantly monitored throughout the season for any kind of mite pressure of any sort or any other disease pressure. We were constantly checking the fields just to, just to observe and see what we saw. But other than that, it was, it was a pretty straightforward season. So you didn't spray anything on the crop other than it sounds like overhead watering? Yeah, overhead watering. We did a little bit of supplemental foliar with uh, fish hydrolysate. But other than that, yeah, it was just a let it rip. Wow, that's great. And did you notice anything else in terms of the crop itself? Any any changes different than, say, when you've seen cannabis? Was hemp very similar in, in all respects? Or were there anything that you noticed that was particularly different? You know, honestly, everybody that walked through the field throughout the season didn't believe that it was a hemp crop. It just has such a similar structure to cannabis. They were definitely couldn't believe that that was hemp. And I, I think that, that you can attribute that to the fact that the high CBD hemp crops that are specific for that, they've come out of a, a breeding regime, I'm assuming, from the cannabis lineage. You know, um, it's a little bit different than what I think of as far as like a, a fiber hemp would be. but. Yeah. Other than that, no, it was it was really straightforward. The structure is beautiful. We had on average, I'd say the plants varied between six and 10 feet tall at the end. Um, I like the more compact, smaller plants. They definitely were more manageable and the the density of the flowers were were better on those smaller, compact plants. What cultivars did you run and did you do any testing afterwards? How did the plants finish? Uh, yeah, they were they were all cultivars from the Boring Hemp Company um, in Boring, Oregon, and they were all Auto Two. That's the O T T O Two crossed with a variety of other genetics. And we did do some independent testing after after the fact. And you know, I I didn't I didn't really have much to compare it to. So for me, it's going to be going forward, like what I what I can see as far as improvements from season to season. You know, I'm I'm no expert on the crop itself. I was just growing it out more than anything to just as a starting place to to see what I could learn. So what are your future plans around hemp? Uh really depends on what the marketplace is like. I think that we're quickly seeing it move into being a commodity crop and so it comes down to a matter of scaling properly and whether we want to do that or not so um, i've had a lot of other farmers uh, vegetable farmers especially that say you know have called me up and say hey should i grow a hemp crop and my answer to them always is like as long as you have a marketplace for it because we've seen the marketplace is is definitely challenging and flooded already so I'm uh, encouraged by the future of it all. I, I think I'm just going to wait and see how how it all develops once kind of the the madness of it all of this first couple seasons kind of dies down. Do you think there's going to be more of a market for these high CBD plants that are grown organically as people start using them more for medicine? Do you, do you see this side of the industry growing just from your own experience? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a matter of the two schools of thought of whether full spectrum, full spectrum material as opposed to an isolated material, which is more beneficial. Um, right now, a lot of times that isolated material is more easily, 
I think, distributed nationwide. That's my understanding, at least. And the full spectrum material is something that it, I think stays more in state right now. I think I think the industry is very young right now, and it's going to be interesting to see how it matures. But I, I would hope from what I hear from people that are more knowledgeable in that arena than me, from what I can hear is that there's a lot more public acceptance each year and people are finding real intrinsic value in using using those high CBD materials, you know, to their advantage for their health. And and I think that as science gets behind it more and can prove more, so it's just not anecdotal understanding, that we'll see wider and wider acceptance. Yeah, my father is actually dealing with a rare disease called CIDP that's a chronic uh, neuropathy. And huh. he uses cannabis uh, that he infuses with coconut oil as a way of uh, topical to help treat uh-huh. a lot of his pain. And it's been life changing to help him because before that they had him on super high levels of narcotics. That was really, really tough. It was changing his personality. It took away all his energy. It actually didn't help deal with the pain over time. So I'm, I'm really hopeful in the medicinal side of this. So I'm glad to hear that there's farmers like you out there growing hemp and, and exploring the CBD aspects of, of cannabis. So thank you. Yeah. And I did want to change topic a little bit since we were talking about the demand. I know this is a little bit topical right now. I've read more articles about the the a massive amount of excess cannabis in Oregon. And I, since you're surrounded by these farmers, what are what are you hearing regarding this topic? Are people worried about next season or, or are they? Yeah, I guess. Where are you at with that? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, the southern Oregon is a hotbed for for the industry, the rec industry right now. And yeah, there's massive concern among a lot of folks because it I think it changed faster and scaled larger and quicker than anybody could assume that it would. And there's been no real cap on the number of licenses as far as I understand. And so it's just been a race to the bottom almost for most people. And that's really disconcerting for people that have put their entire savings into building these brands and now they don't have anywhere for it to go. Just because there's just not the there's not the population base here in Oregon to support that. So yeah, it's it's pretty scary, you know, and it affects all of us down here, not just the people directly involved in the cannabis industry, but all the support industries and even just the local economy here is there's a lot of people that are being very cautious with if they expand the, any of their businesses or how they're going forward, people are being very cautious because I, I, I think we could see the bottom drop out pretty quickly. Now, th- does that mean that it won't recover? No, I don't think so. I think that it, it's just part of the growing pains of the industry. I just don't think that people expected to see it shift uh, so rapidly. Yeah. And I think the way that people are going to survive is by becoming more efficient in the way they're growing and reducing their expenses. and you know, a lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast in terms of using using methodologies and ideas out of the, the farming or egg community. So uh, we'll, we'll see or differentiating your product by being, yep. you know, organic or craft or having some something that makes you unique from someone that someone's flowers, you know, just down the road. Yep, I think differentiation is going to be that's the that's the hot item that people are trying to figure out right now is differentiating is the thing that needs to happen is just a question of how, you know? Yeah, it's tough because you have guys that are farmers, you know, they're not 
they're not marketing companies and they don't know how to build a brand necessarily. They may be growing great high quality cannabis that's organic, but in terms of getting that information out to the consumer, that's a whole different skill set. And it's a big challenge, I think, for a lot of people. And so I'm hopeful that some of this will come out as the industry evolves, but that's that's a big concern for me. Yep, I agree. So one of the things that I was really excited to talk about with you when I found out that you were coming on the podcast was because you've been farming vegetables for so long and you have this this level of experience, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the mistakes that you've made over the years, because I know for me, a lot of the biggest lessons I've learned and the biggest improvements I've made have been from screw ups, you know, that yep. cost me a lot of money. So I'd yep. love to hear some of, from your perspective, what are some of the mistakes that you've made that you that have really improved your farming? Yeah, there's been a lot. And, and you know, that's what I always tell people is that if if you're a farmer just getting into farming and you go to an elder farmer and ask, hey, what? what can I do to be successful? Generally, the farmers that are being the most honest will not tell you what you can do. They'll tell you what not to do. And so that's that's definitely what I, I talk with younger farmers about a lot. For me, the things that if I could do it all over again, I think I would have I would have invested in the proper machinery and tools to scale up more effectively earlier. And I think that I would have focused even more on training my people and having a really good business culture or like on farm culture like focusing even more on taking care of my taking care of my crew from the beginning and not that I never not that I didn't take care of my crew but just focusing on the culture surrounding the work days and really looking at at how you can encourage people to keep going because, you know, farming is not easy work. And so you get in the middle of a hundred degree day in August and you see a lot of people's productivity really dip down. And so I've learned over the years tips and tricks that I can pass on to my field managers to, to kind of keep the work ethic and the, and the whole vibe of the crew up. You know, those are the biggest things is because the people really are the glue that keeps it all together. And another thing that I've learned is once I was able to afford a full-time tractor slash irrigation slash maintenance guy onto my crew, uh, that was a life changer for me too, because then I could focus on being the farmer and he focused on the nuts and bolts of keeping it all together. But but some of those things, you know, that that comes with time as you scale and as you grow. So those are the biggest things that I've I've learned. You know, there's also micro fails that I've had as far as, you know, just the little things of like getting the proper water on transplants as soon as you put them out there and not waiting and just having little failures here and there. But that that kind of just comes with the territory on a day to day basis. Yeah, I think going back to what you mentioned about your staff, I think that's really important. And one thing that I learned pretty quickly is that. I can't expect an employee to have to work as hard as I'm willing to work. That's not their business. Yeah. Uh, you know, they may have a passion for farming, but at the end of the day, like you mentioned, you're in hundred degree weather and it's, it's brutal and yep. it, it's, it's a different mentality. So building that culture and finding ways to incentivize and support your staff is so important. And then getting the right staff in place. I've had the issues where I've held on to staff members that maybe necessarily weren't the right fit but kept them on longer than I should have, you know, because we do believe in the people. It's like, it's like family at at a certain point. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that like a big mental shift for me was several years ago, I had an older friend that had been farming for a long time. And he said to me, he said, the sooner you can realize that you work for your employees and not the other way around, the better your, your farm culture is going to be. And I, it took me a while to understand that. But then I started realizing like, that's my job is to make sure that my employees have everything they need. And so if there is failure on their part, it's because I haven't trained them well enough. And so once I started approaching it like that, man, things got so much easier because anytime a problem would come up, I'd be like, okay, what am I not doing here effectively to teach them? And that doesn't fix the problems of, you know, somebody that just doesn't care and just doesn't come to work because they have a horrible work ethic. But on the day to day, I found that when I started focusing on what I could do to make it a great work environment for them, things got a lot easier. That's great. And you get a lot of feedback from your employees in terms of ways to make improvements around the farm and things like that. Yeah, I do. I, I have a very open door policy with what's going on. And we also understand each other to the point that if somebody comes and says, hey, I see it like this, and I say, well, from my experience, that just doesn't work, but I appreciate your feedback, then they know that I'm not just shooting them down to shoot them down. They generally will trust me from a, a point of of experience, you know, and I, I try to be open and communicate that clearly. Yeah, that's great. I always encourage my staff to speak up, but then also if they do notice a problem to try and give me a solution as well when they come to me with that problem. They don't they don't have to if they're not able to come up with one. But a lot of times I find they'll they'll come to me and say, hey, we're having this problem, say, with an animal enclosure. And this is yep. what I think we need to do to solve it. And I can just turn to them and say, that's great. I, let's do it, you know, because they're taking ownership of the land and of the business and making good decisions that are helping all of us have a better experience. So I yep. can't I can't say enough good things about that. Yep. That's the way to do it. And then in terms of equipment, I know I've bought equipment that was either underpowered or not suited for the right job in my on my farm. Uh, have, have you made that mistake in your process or do you have anything regarding purchasing equipment or using equipment that you'd like to touch on? Yeah, generally, all I mean, this is, I guess this sounds like a really classic American response or whatever, which is always buy the biggest machinery that you can afford. Um, and I don't mean just go overboard with it, but I found over the years that anytime I've bought a I'm like, well, I can afford a six foot disc or if I if it hurts a little bit, I could buy an eight foot disc. And just the efficiencies that come with the proper sizing of those things and looking at the the long term payout, if you're spending, you know, 20 percent more initially, the long term payout is going to give you a 50 percent return. Well, then you should do it. You know, um, those are the biggest things for me is just properly sizing the equipment. And that came from just asking experienced farmers, you know, what they've used. So I, I can't encourage people enough to reach out to people that have more experience than you. Yeah, that's great. And I think encouraging people to get to know your neighbors, because that's where your pest pressures are coming from. They may know the history of your land. They can give you experience with what grows well in your area. A uh, ton of benefits there. Yep, I agree 100%. So any other advice to new farmers, people that want to get into farming? Yeah, the the things that I I've been asked that question a, a lot over the years and the things that I always tell folks are uh number 1 is learn how to be a business owner. Like farming is actually pretty easy. I mean, it's tough, but it's way easier than running a business. 
And so if you can't find that bottom line, then you're not going to stay in business very long. So that's the thing that that I've learned over the years. Uh, I think the modern farmer is way more like an entrepreneur than the classic I- idyllic vision of what a farmer was, you know, when our grandparents were were young. So that's one thing is learn how to run a business. And then the second thing that I always tell folks is be okay with leasing land. You don't have to own the farm, uh, at least not at first. And if I could do it all over again, I think my wife and I probably would have found a small house somewhere on a small piece of land and leased a ground to get used to growing in our area, especially where we moved into this area. And then you're just not tied to that piece of land. Because like our home property that we originally bought, it's good land, but it's nothing like the ground that we have our production acreage on now. And so that that's something that I think that uh, people get caught up in the idyllic vision of like, oh, I have to own my own farm to be be able to be a farmer. And, and that just isn't true because the the amount of land available out there is is unbelievable and it's growing every year. You just have to figure out smart contractual agreements with the land owners to to make sure you protect yourself. And it can take years to bring back poor soils. And so it's I, I, you bring up a good point and something that uh, actually Steve Solomon talked about when he first started homesteading in Oregon is he wishes that he had bought better land because it took him forever to bring that land back. And he yep. just didn't look at it closely enough when he was first purchasing. Yep. Yep. That's that's where we're at. I mean, once we started growing on our production piece that we have, the soil was at least 100 times better than the property um, at home. And so we just saw our yields go through the roof with not any extra work of what we had been doing before. So that that was just a really eye opener for us. Yeah. So in terms of growing on your lands, you're obviously planting directly in the ground. I do see a lot of cannabis farmers planting into containers. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on growing in containers versus growing directly in ground? Yeah. I mean, that's like a whole other podcast on its own, I guess. Um I I think that the jury's still out on if one is better than the other as far as the end result of what what you get out of it. I think it depends on your approach, your methodology. You know, I, I feel like container gardening allows people more control and it probably mimics mimics the world of like the classic hydroponic style more just because you you get more nutrient flow through and more water flow through in that case. And if you're working in native soils, you'll see that the frequency of irrigating is much less. And there that that comes down to your your personal ethics and and approach to farming, as well as what kind of resources as far as irrigation water and you know, that you have available to you. I, I prefer like here in Southern Oregon, I mean, we have some amazing class one soils and I've seen some cannabis farmers pull off amazing crops, just going right into the native soil. Um, but they've definitely had to change their growing approach. And it's really hard when you've been growing in a, in a certain way for, you know, 10, 15 years uh, or more. And then you all of a sudden have to get to where you maybe are only irrigating once or twice or three times a week at the most. So that's a, a farmer has to be willing to make that shift, you know? Yeah, I'm a big proponent of planting directly in the ground because owning a, a retail nursery, you can see the difference when you allow a plant to have as much root space as it wants. Uh, it gets much larger. I have a great example yeah. with our mulberries where we have some in a container that are about two feet tall now after two years. And then I have one in the ground that's over eight feet tall, same that was brought in at the same time. Yep. 
And like you mentioned, the ethics involved with using less water, you're going to keep the root zone temperature down, which is probably good in your area because of the heat. Yep. There's so many benefits. Now, you're not just planting it in native ground. I'm, I'm guessing you're probably doing some soil testing. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it really depends on your specific locale. You know, I mean, there's a lot of the ground that people have been growing cannabis on for years have been these up in the hills properties. And so you find heavy, heavy clay content up there, which could be a real challenge to grow in without doing some serious soil remediation. Down where I am in the bottom of the river valley, a lot of the cannabis farms that that surround us down here, you know, those are class one, like super loamy, silty loam soils. Some of those, there's little that needs to be done other than, say, liming or some pH balancing uh, through that and some mineralization and then just adding infertility into those into those soils. Um, but yeah, soil testing's really where it's at. That's It's something that I'm still on a learning curve with. I am no expert with understanding the intricacies of the full the full world of, of soil testing. I'm learning every year. But since I've actively done tests on my veggie ground over the last 10 years, my my understanding of my individual soils at the farm uh, have grown immensely. And it's been really exciting to watch how it's changed due to what what kind of amendments we put down and and even these like little nuanced differences between one soil on this side of the property to another soil type on the other side of the property and how they respond differently. And it is a balance to like, I, I just don't have the time to spend countless hours, like really digging into all of this because the margins in the vegetable world are so tight. You know, at the end of the day, I spend more time just getting product out of the field. So that's the beauty of the the cannabis industry is that it's always seen better margins. So people have been able to focus more on that. And that's something I've always been a, a bit envious of is the ability for the cannabis industry to really dial in and look at specifics surrounding soils. Yeah, you bring up a really good point around soil testing and that it's it's simply just another tool uh, like a shovel or a tractor. It's another yep. way of gathering data that you can use to make more informed decisions about your land. Yep. And uh, you also brought up some other points that I thought was good. So there are times when it's not necessarily great to plant in land directly into the ground, like when you have very high clay soils. I'd also mention if you had a lot of real heavy burrowing pests like rats or moles or things like that, then a container might make sense. If you're in a floodplain where you dig down and your water line is really high, close to the top surface of your soil, then you may want to go into a container. So, yep. oh, and if you have really bad heavy metals or you're on remediated land. So, yeah, those yep. are just other things I want to throw out there. Now, yep. let's talk a little bit about how you do fertilize your crops. So you mentioned that you have different programs for different crops. Where are you, where are you getting your fertility? Yeah, so fertility for us comes from a pelleted fertilizer. It's uh, from the chicken manure world, pelletized. That's our pre-plant fertilizer. It's kind of like our broad spectrum, what, what we put out on the fields. We focus a lot on cover cropping as far as fertility goes. So sometimes nitrogen fixing cover crops, sometimes organic matter building cover crops, combos of both. And then we also use a fish hydrolysate 
that we put into our irrigation systems, either overhead or through drip. And then those are the main uh, fertility drivers for us. And then we also look at mineralization. And our mineral mineralization program has been pretty uh, like we haven't fine tuned it to each specific crop because of honestly, just because of of cost, you know, we just have to keep cruising forward. So we've kind of had this general overview program, you know, using glacial rock dust and azomite and other trace minerals like that. And now actually my my education curve on the whole world of mineralization has really been growing over the last several years. And so that's something I'm starting to dive into a little deeper, but I, I'm no expert on that yet. But I, I can see the the value of that going forward. Are you doing anything from a biological perspective? Uh, yeah, I mean, we we've used different inoculants in our transplants in the past and we've made teas in the past. I, I haven't really. And, and what I always did with teas in the past, and I've kind of scaled back on on teas because um, there's kind of like a lot of a lot going on in that world right now that I'm just kind of the jury's out, you know, for right now. But what I did for a long time, just for for more than anything, food safety reasons, just to keep my certifiers happy was putting biological teas out on our cover crops and feeding the feeding the cover crops instead of the food crops. And just with the, the concept that the biology would be there and inoculated in those soils. And then when we had those soils turned under, then we could come back and follow with a food crop just because there's a lot of there's a lot of debate over the world of using teas and like foodborne pathogens and all that kind of stuff. So that's that was our approach in the past. In the last several years, I've found a really good uh, point of I I don't know if I I guess I'd call it like I think of the biology in our fields is really healthy right now, and I've just been watching that, and we're having to fertilize less and less each year. And we're just kind of going off of the bank of fertility and the biology that's there. And we're still seeing great results from the crops. And I know I'll have to shift that at some point, but that's kind of been our approach for right now. So it seems like we have a pretty good stored bank of fertility and we'll just keep observing. Now, when you say teas, are you talking about aerated compost teas? Yeah, I mean, I've gone... I, I messed around with aerated compost teas for a while, and then I kind of got into just doing more of compost extracts, like a real quick extract where I wasn't actively bubbling. And you know, I've kind of messed around with with everything, whether it's been worm-based teas or compost-based teas or or whatever. But I honestly, I, I never really dove into it deep just because, again, a, a lot of what I end up doing on the vegetable farm, it comes down to cost and time of how much energy I can put into it. It's been an interesting kind of like shoot from the hip kind of project. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned you, that you use some cover crops. Do you have some favorites in terms of actual uh, actual varieties or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. And what I always tell folks, what works here in Southern Oregon may not work where you're at. Um, and I think that that's really important. You just kind of have to experiment. Um, that's what I did. Specifically, the valley that we're in here, oats and peas work really well. I can plant oats and peas as late as December 1st and still get a nice stand before the spring. It really depends on when I'm going to be harvesting or you know chopping that that crop down in the spring. So if I have more time to let it grow and say, I'm not going to take a field out of cover crop until May or June, then I can get a really nice stand. 
so that's my overwintered go-to is oats and peas, like a cayuse oat and a Austrian winter pea. I've done rye and vetch in the past. There's one of the things I learned the hard way was a an annual rye is the thing to use and not a perennial rye. I, I learned the hard way on that one. And, uh, and then during the main growing season, I've had great success with Sudex, like a Sudan cover crop for organic matter building and uh, weed suppression. And then I've used buckwheat a lot. I really like buckwheat as a crop because it's so fast to grow. It's like up and down in like six to eight weeks and a nice little phosphorus boost as well. And then if you can let it flower out before it really goes to seed, it's an amazing attractor uh, for beneficials. Those have been the main things I've worked with. I've tried some understory planting of clovers and vetches. That's really challenging if you don't have your weed seed bank under control in your fields. So that's something that I would like to work with more in the future. The last three or four years, we've really focused a lot on making sure that we're removing our weed seed bank out of the soils. And so making sure that none of the weeds go to flower anymore. And that's making a huge difference. So once we get that under control, I probably will start experimenting with more covers during main season. Is that a manual process where you're actually going out and physically plucking the weeds? Sometimes it is. It's also about what we call a bare fallow, where we'll have a block that we're not growing in for a certain cycle that will go ahead and irrigate that block and then germinate the weed seeds. And then we go through and do a light cultivation, nothing deep or aggressive, just a light cultivation on the top to knock those weeds out. And we may do that for, you know, one to three cycles, you know, we'll irrigate, grow them up, knock them down, grow them up, knock them down. And then we'll plant a cover crop into that area and let that grow up and then chop and drop it. That has been really good for us as well. But, but then, yeah, it's also, out in the field when we have veggies growing, just making sure that none of the weeds that do come up and make it that they ever go to seed. Yeah, that's great. And so you're you're actually tilling these cover cover crops back into the soil then before you plant your next crop? Yes. Yeah. We usually will use a, a flail mower just to really pulverize and allow the soil to eat that cover crop up quickly. You know, it depends on what kind of turnaround you want out of the field. Cause the the smaller that we can make the residue, the faster the soil can, you know, uh, uh, like eat it up, you know. Um, and so that's that's kind of been our our process. Yeah, that makes sense. You're increasing the surface area for the microbes to be able to consume yep. it. Great. So let's talk a little bit about some of the advocacy work you're doing. So you have this upcoming Living Soil Symposium that I'm really disappointed I'm going to be out of town for. I want to go. I know my buddy Jaya Palmer has been a speaker in previous years, and he raved about it. I have a lot of friends that have attended. Can you talk a little bit about some of the the goals around that and what, what it is? Oh, yeah, sure. So I founded the Living Soil Symposium three years ago. It really came out of the... I, I just saw the greater agricultural community online talking about a lot of these techniques to take our farms beyond organic, like what these next steps would be. But I also saw a lack of depth to communicate as far as the communication um, goes online, because there's only so much you can do with thumb typing your response. You know, you just don't get as deep. And so I said, man, we just really need to create a venue for a lot of people that are similar minded to get together and really go deep on some of these. So that was the real premise for why I created the event 
originally was just to, to get people together and have these interactive conversations. And we've always encouraged it to be a, a two-way street as far as the audience interacting with the presenters and vice versa, instead of just being talked to by a, a you know, in a PowerPoint presentation. By no means do I have the the structure of the symposium completely figured out yet. Every year is a is another permutation of what the previous year was. And so we listen and observe what the community at large is saying and are trying to bring in a diverse set of presenters each year. And so like this year, we we've really expanded out into a lot of different traditions of farming, whether it's whether it's permaculture or uh, grazing or orchards or vineyards and hemp and cannabis and even vegetable production, um, we're just really trying to widen our reach and let the community realize that there there's a lot of people out there talking the same message, even though we might have a different crop that is our you know that's our income crop. So I'm hoping that there can be this cross-pollination between these different methodologies of farming that we can find the commonality and then come out of it being better, better growers altogether. Um, so that's the main idea of what, what I was trying to, to do with creating the symposium. So the symposium this year is being held in Portland. It starts on uh, March 23rd through the 25th, yep. and it's not a cannabis symposium. Correct. But you do have some cannabis, uh, yes, some cannabis related speakers. In fact, yes. I see a good friend of mine here, David Bernard Perone is going to be one of your, yep. one of your speakers for the weekend session. Yep. Is there anything else you want to highlight? Any, any talks that you're really looking forward to this year? People you haven't heard before? Um, oh yeah. I mean, there's several folks that, um, I, I, I brought on because I wanted to see how they would bring into the fold. There's Zach Lokes. He does. He wrote a book called The Permaculture Market Garden. Um, I'm really intrigued by what he's doing, where he's doing like a market scale vegetable operation, but with permaculture design in mind. A Portland local, Peter McCoy, he has radical mycology. I think that we're going to see what an important place uh, fungi play in agriculture going forward. So I, I, I wanted to bring his voice in. And I, I think the overall thing that I really want people to understand is that I tried to look at the symposium as a curriculum, a weekend curriculum as a whole. So we're hoping that the, there's, some, there's some synergy between one presenter and another presenter, that one presenter can fill in a piece of the puzzle and the next presenter can fill in another piece of the puzzle. So like our friend Sam from Soil Symbiotics, he talks a lot about mineralization. And then I have this fella, Dan Kitteridge, who's part of the Bionutrient Association, and he focuses on nutrient density and crops. So I'm hoping that there can be a continuation of education between those two guys' presentations that, that Sam can talk about the science and the specifics behind mineralization and the importance of it. And then Dan can connect the dots to how that translates to the food that we're actually eating or the cannabis we're actually consuming. So I'm, I'm working hard on that. And the one thing that I'm, I know is kind of the most out there idea that we're hitting on this year is I, I have a group of folks that are, we're going to be actually looking at the social, like we're the social permaculture of the event. So basically I have folks that are going to look at the design of the event and they're going to be observing the event as if they were visiting a farm to implement a, a permaculture design onto that farm. So like what 
what is the cultural structure of our event and what can we do to improve it so it, it has the proper way, um, the proper flow with systems management, you know? And that's, it's kind of this esoteric and out there idea that I, I had, but I think it's really worth it to look at the culture that's driving the event is just as important as the information that we're getting out of the event. So that's, that's something that I'm, I'm really excited about as well. Oh, I think that's great. I mean, one of the great things about permaculture is since it is a design system, you can really apply it to anything and, and people are applying it to the technology industry, to uh, just about just about anything uh, you can imagine. So I think it's wonderful that you're looking at the social aspect there. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited that you're putting on this event. And I think it fills something in the industry that's been needed needing to happen. And it's definitely gaining traction. So I hope people will definitely go and check it out if they haven't heard of it or if they haven't gotten their tickets yet. Is there still room available? Oh yeah, their tickets are available. Yeah, they're they're going to be available. The tickets close March seventeenth uh, because we do serve lunch both days. We kind of need to know our numbers. Uh, so the sooner that people get their tickets, the better for us, just so we know how many people to expect and we can prepare accordingly. But yeah, the tickets are out there. You can get tickets for there's a Friday farm visit to a farm right outside of Portland. That's more of a hands-on practical. Uh, experience. Those tickets are limited to just a hundred tickets available for that. And then the Saturday and Sunday sessions, you can get a ticket to one or both sessions, you know? Um, so it's just really whatever people can fit into their schedule. I, I highly encourage people to come and be part of the community discussion. That's something that I've been focusing a lot on is making sure that the audience is stacked just as strong as our list of presenters, because that is really important to me because it is a, it is a dialogue between the entire community. And so the stronger that we can make the entire, the entire group of people, the better I feel. Yeah. Jaya came back uh, super energized from, from the last one that he attended talking about how it was just a wonderful group of people and especially the audience itself having like-minded people in the same room that are able to share all their ideas because everyone has a story and everyone has experience. So that's, that's really great. Now, was there anything else you wanted to, you wanted to cover before we sign off? Did you want to uh, talk any more related to farming or the symposium or anything else? No, I just, I just want your listeners to know how glad I am that you're doing this podcast. I think it, the more people that can do podcasts like this to really get the message out about about what we can what's really possible for us going forward in agriculture it's really exciting to me so i just uh, applaud you for the work that you're doing tad well let's follow up again maybe after the symposium and see if you can share some of the things that you learned at the symposium and some of the exciting new in, new things going on in the industry so i'm this this podcast has been great for me i really enjoy it it's open doors in terms of meeting new people like yourself and yeah i really appreciate that so I'll get this podcast up right away for listeners so that they can sign up for the Living Soil Symposium this year. And I look forward to talking soon. Yeah, sounds great. Have a good one, Ted. All right. So, Chris, I'm having you back on the show today to talk a little bit about the Living Soil Symposium. You know, when we first recorded the show, we were talking up the symposium and I was so excited for what you guys were doing. And then uh, some things happened and the show was canceled. So I wanted to use this as a platform to talk a little bit about that process and sort of what happened and let listeners kind of into your brain and what's been going on. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me back on, Tad. I think it's really important for me to 
you know, relay the message and, and kind of things that I've learned after the fact, now that we've had to cancel the symposium. Really, it came down to ticket sales for us. We had we knew that the ticket sales had been low, but the previous two years, they'd been low until the last two weeks. We had previous two years, we had sold a large majority of our tickets in the last two weeks. But this year, once I checked in with my team, I saw that they were just not there this year. And we were watching how fast or slow they had been going and started kind of doing the math and said, man, there is no way that we're going to be able to reach our break-even point in the next three weeks. So at that time, we had like three weeks of ticket sales left, I think it was, um, because we had a cutoff date seven to 10 days before the actual event so we could get plate counts for the meals for both days. So we said, there's no way that we're going to reach that that number in the next three weeks. It just It just won't happen. And so it was a matter, it really came down to a business decision of sorts. It was I could cancel the event now, um, which has been about a week ago, uh, as you and I are talking right now, and I can lose the money on all of my deposits uh, on all the event space and and the extra costs that, that I had already invested. Or I could try to see if we could weather the storm and really make a, a, a move to sell tickets. But even then, if I didn't, find that break even point, then I was going to lose about another $20,000 on top of what I was already losing. And so for me, I had to make that decision and say, I just have to call this. This is just not, this is just not going to work. And, and that really comes down to it. It was my own personal uh, financial responsibility. Um, and so I had to make that decision from my standpoint, because I didn't have a backer on any of this at all. It's just been you know, my own, my own money to bootstrap this whole thing from the beginning. So this was your, your vision, this symposium, and it was something that you put together out of your passion for this style of cultivation and farming. And when, when you say your, your ticket sales were low, I know you and I talked, we're not talking, you know, 10 or 20 tickets, we're talking hundreds of tickets low. So it was a, yeah, it was really a financial decision on your part to cancel this show. And I know it wasn't an easy decision for you. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure it's been, um, you've gotten some feedback. I'm sure I've seen some both positive and negative feedback on your Instagram page yep. since yep. then. Do you want to talk a little about sort of the emotional process you went through with this and, and sure. do you have any comments to the people who left both, you know, positive and negative feedback on there? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I would say, um, I, I listened to all the feedback and I don't think that I don't think any of the feedback was out of line at all, really. Um, you know, I, I'm really good at critiquing myself. I mean, being a farmer, you kind of have to be good at critiquing yourself. There was a lot of things that I, I took chances on that I shouldn't have. We thought that there was a greater, a greater capacity for the event this year. And so we found a bigger space that could facilitate a larger a, a larger group of people. Um, and that meant that we had to move up to Portland because I didn't find a space down here in Southern Oregon where I'd had it the previous two years that could hold that number of people. That was a mistake on my part. Just the move. I totally understand that. The added cost of of having a bigger space meant that my d upfront costs were more. So I was more on the line for 
for making sure that I, I sold X a number of tickets. I definitely realize in the world of running an event like this, once you start scaling up, it becomes more challenging to do it with a minimal number of sponsors and not having a trade show. I think that, and that was something that I was trying to avoid was having a trade show that brings in money and having a lot of sponsorships that brings in a lot of money. I was really trying to keep it into a symposium atmosphere of, of really critical thinking without being clouded by sales of products or trying to pitch products or whatever. And so that was a big lesson for me. Um, that doesn't mean that if in the future, if I was going to do something more that I would, I would uh, definitely have a trade show and have a ton of sponsors. I just think that I would look at a different, a different format. Probably those were some of the things. The other thing that I saw as far as uh, comments were that it was too expensive. Um, those that that cost that I was charging for the event for the two days was basically a break-even cost for us because I didn't have a ton of sponsorships and because I didn't have a trade show and the fact that we were working really hard to pay all of the presenters properly this year. And in years past, people had done it for free. And even though a lot of people still wanted to do that, we were trying you know, to pay everybody fairly to present. And it wasn't a lot, but it was like... But once you have the amount of people that we had presenting this year, once you multiply it by that many people, it adds up to a chunk of a chunk of cash to get people there. So that was really the reason for the increase in the ticket price this year. And I know that the state of agriculture right now, uh, especially the cannabis industry, I, I had a lot of people reach out to me and say, hey, man, we came last year, but we just can't afford to come this year because the financial state of the cannabis industry, especially here in Oregon right now, is really uh, on rocky ground. And and so and that is a big part of my demographic is the cannabis community. And I get it where they're coming from. I'm seeing it all around. And then there were there were the people outside of cannabis that were just in agriculture together that just said, you know, we're kind of burned out on on conferences and this to them it just seemed like another conference and that was probably our my myself and my team's fault for not not putting the message out there stronger as to how we were going to differentiate ourselves um and so that's something that i'm learning from as well that just allowing a conference or a symposium like this to grow organically it worked really well in the first two years just word of mouth but as we were kind of growing up, I think that we probably should have earmarked a much bigger chunk of our budget towards pushing posts to people, paid advertising, paid marketing um, out to the out to all the people. And that's something that that I am looking into for the future, how I would approach things differently, because honestly, in the last year, a lot of the algorithms in the world of Instagram and Facebook have changed. And I don't think that we were as aware of uh, as aware of that as we are now, just that the organic reach is just not the same. It was a year ago. So all of those things together, I think were major contributors and there were, you know, smaller other, other factors too, but it's like, that's, it's like there, there's like the overall takeaway is that the ticket sales were just low and that's, that's kind of where we were at. Yeah, I love the idea of it being in Portland, since I'm up in the Seattle area, being able mm -hmm. to bring people down from Washington out of the 502 market to yep. be able to attend as well, I think is is amazing. You touched on a lot of things there. 
that I think are all really important. One thing I know I had talked with some with some good friends in the industry about doing it something similar to what you were doing, like a symposium. And there are all these challenges. And even with this podcast, I've avoided having advertising on here or um, anything because there's so many issues around that in terms of what products that you personally support or feel are you know, created ethically and that you would even want at a trade show. And once yep. you go that route, it's really, it's a slippery slope when, when money starts coming in and, and saying no to some people and yes to others, I think is a real challenge. So yep. uh, I, I commend you in that and in, in staying with that symposium forum. And I'm really hopeful that next year we can generate enough interest and I'd love to, you know, come on board and help out as much as I can from the outside in promoting what you're doing. Cause I think it's so important that we get this information out to the wider, the wider audience, both in cannabis and in farming. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I think that it's, I think that that's something that I'm taking away from this is that when you are trying to, trying to put a message that's this big and this diverse out there, which really, I mean, honestly, the living soils moniker was really just saying nature, you know, like we're just all trying to find our own pattern recognition of nature. So whenever you're trying to take something on that big, like it's going to take some time. And I think that that's something that I'm realizing is that this is, this is a long path that I'm taking. And it's not like, I, I don't think that I took that as seriously as I should have, as far as like, how much work it takes to affect culture in a healthy way. Um, and so that's something that I'm, I'm taking note of. It's like, we need to keep pushing forward with this, this educational message. And I just have to be patient, you know, like I, I really view this as a hiccup in the road. And other than the fact that it, it, it kind of sucks for me financially in the short term, in the long term, I know that the, that the end result is, is, and can be a really good thing. I just have to be patient with that. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're still moving forward with everything and, and not too discouraged by this. And I hope that listeners and people that were attend, you know, attendees were uh, open-minded to the greater situation and the perspective here in terms of what you you're going through and the energy you're putting into this and what it's costing you financially for, you know, you and your family. Uh, one thing you touched on with the symposium that I think is, is really the coolest thing about it is that you're when you say that living soils is just is just nature we have and this is something we talked about off air we have all these different ways of cultivation and farming you know in our community in terms of you know korean natural farming permaculture uh, probiotic farming you know you have all these you know, biodynamics all these different styles or methodologies that are all slightly different but all organic and all looking to uh looking to promote ethical and sustainable cultivation and farming. And what I love about your symposium is it's getting all these people together to where if you're an open-minded human being, an individual, there's something to learn from every group. You know, each one is going to be slightly different, but each one has a really powerful message that we can share and all learn from each other so that maybe we don't have to have all these separate groups that are divided tribes, but rather just united under this idea of trying to save the environment and trying to grow sustainably. Yep, I agree. And I, you know, the analogy that I've been using in all of this is like, I've, I just view it as speaking different languages and then you have to get everybody in one room. It's kind of like when you see the United Nations kind of get together and meet and you see all these people with different headsets on that have their 
the translation is happening. Like that's really what I viewed the symposium to be was a place where people are speaking different languages, but at the end of the day, we're all basically speaking the same language. It's just how we're going about presenting it, you know? And so that's, that's something that I keep in mind in all of this. Very cool. Well, was there anything else you wanted to cover in terms of the symposium itself or um, anything else you wanted to say to listeners regarding what was going on? No, I mean, nothing other than um, some folks have already reached out to me with brainstorming ideas of how they would like to see things go forward or what their ideas are to to make things continue this educational path continue. Um, and I, so I just encourage people to keep reaching out to us with their ideas. And I also encourage people to take it into their own hands. If they see that they can create a group of like-minded folks or open-minded folks in their own communities that you should start creating events, small micro events yourselves, you know, and, and that's one idea that I've really really resonated with over the last week as several people have said, well, I'm just going to start my own event here and then maybe we can meet up at the symposium each year to kind of share our regional ideas. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. That's like, so if, if nothing else, maybe this is a, this kind of like bump in the road is a catalyst for other folks to realize that they can take, you know, take that power in their own hands. Oh, so sort of like a Ted talks thing with TEDx. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Kind of like a, you know, doing their own, their own because that's the thing is like what we realize is that all of our farms are different you know and so and that can be a regional difference too and so like there's folks in colorado that said we're going to start a small a small gathering out here of of folks and talk about the same topics that you'd be talking about at the symposium and then all of them would love to come to get together in a yearly celebration of what they're learning and share it with others you know something like that i don't know it's 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 all about brainstorming together as a community that's that's brilliant. I love it. I would love to uh, I'd love to talk to you further about that. And maybe we can I mean, you're down in southern Oregon. I'm up here in uh, Washington. It would be great to have something up here, too. You know, yep. or smaller events. So wonderful. Cool. Um, well, again, thanks for your time today. I will add this on to the podcast so people can get a little more perspective on what was going on. And uh, yeah, thanks again. I'll let you get back to the farming. I know you got a lot of work to do out there. Thanks, Dad. All right. Have a great day. That was Chris Jagger, owner of Blue Fox Farm. Be sure to check out the upcoming Living Soil Symposium at www.livingsoilssymposium.com and Chris's farm website at www.bluefoxfarm.com. You are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. Don't forget that there's more information and articles available on our website and blog at www.kisorganics.com, as well as links to the data and information we discussed in this episode on the podcast page. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please take a moment to leave me a rating and review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and send me your feedback and suggestions through our website contact page, or tad at kissorganics.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.